Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In this episode of Chunk of Change, we speak to Carolyn Creswell, founder and managing director of Carmen's Fine Foods. In the 28 years since Carolyn started her artisanal muesli business, she's managed to turn the Carmen's brand into an international breakfast and snacking powerhouse that now exports to over 30 countries around the world, all the while keeping her feet firmly planted on the ground through a combination of self-awareness, gratefulness, and a general willingness never to shy away from tough conversations. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Carolyn Creswell, founder of Carmen's Fine Foods. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks very much again for joining us on Chunk of Change. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Look, so much has been reported about your extraordinary journey. Um, and I, I must admit, have been lucky enough to spend some time with your team at your headquarters in Huntingdale already. So I'm going to do my best to maintain a beginner's mindset for the duration of our conversation today. Um, we're obviously recording these still in lockdown. I'm here at the Royals in our deserted Melbourne office in Cremorne. Um, but I believe you're recording from your holiday home in Beena, is that right? Yeah, so we've got a farm with 100 acres and chickens and cows and horses and a whole lot of, um, uh, you know, gorgeous country life happening down here. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I, I had heard a whisper that you had a place out in Beena, which is in South Gippsland, is that right? Yes. I must admit, it struck me as a little bit unusual because I, I would imagine, Carolyn, that um, a woman of your entrepreneurial success would be able to have a fair amount of choice when it came to your choice of, of holiday homes. I, I've got to ask, first of all, why Bina? What was it that drew you to the place? Um, so many years ago, and my husband um, is an arborist, so he's a, a tree surgeon and he has a, an absolute passion for beautiful trees. And so that was his big desire when we we're looking for somewhere. He wanted somewhere with lovely trees and which is a kind of funny thing when, you, when you're looking for a holiday place. So we drew a circle around Victoria of two hours, or around Melbourne, sorry, and we would just go and we didn't have kids then and we'd look at different places on weekends. And then we came down here and um, for anyone that ever has, um, has the privilege of coming to this tiny little pocket, um, you, you drive um, about an hour out of Melbourne and you hit this little town called Lock and it's the cutest town with a tiny little microbrewery and gorgeous little cafes and antique stores and everyone sort of knows everyone and it's just divine. There's rolling hills. Everyone says it looks like Ireland. So it's just beautiful oh, green rolling hills and, and we actually look out and we have a little glimpse of the ocean from our place and, um, and it's been a heaven and particularly in ISO, I've just loved that sense of connecting with nature and, you know, we collect our rainwater and we've got solar power and, you know, it's very um, sort of, oh, you know, sustainable life. It's... it's, um, it's been an absolute, um, a lovely place to spend, um, to spend ISO. How much time do you spend out there when you're not in ISO? Well, I didn't spend as much and I used to. I think we're probably all quite fascinated with what it's been like to work from home. I wouldn't have thought that I could have worked from here full time. I certainly wouldn't have thought I could have worked from here with 
four kids and a husband and all the kids doing homeschooling and, you know, the, the whole concept, you know, it would have been, I would have thought ludicrous before we did it. And what mm. I would say for me is that sometimes it's not the number of hours that you work. It's the quality of your thinking. It's the quality of your sort of ability to think about the strategic direction and bigger projects. And so even though I probably haven't worked nearly, you know, as many hours because I'm running out and doing the kids' lunch and finishing up to start the dinners and, you know, do all of the other stuff where, you know, it's not as though you have sort of these, you know, nights where you stay back at the office. I think I've had more clarity and, um, and you know, I've enjoyed I'd, I'd never done a Zoom meeting. I'd never done anything in any form of um, video conferencing. Now it's actually been fascinating and I think, you know, Carmen's has done some of our greatest work in the last few months, which I'm super mm. proud of. Yeah, I'm keen to hear more about that in a moment, but I'd, I'd love you to elaborate on on how you feel like Bina has provided you with some of that clarity in your life. I think that when you sometimes, you know, the biggest, isn't it that, that old joke that why is it that our best ideas come to us at, you know, in the shower um, or, you know, maybe when we're driving somewhere because we don't often give ourselves time to be still and just thinking time. And I've found that because, you know, you might have a call or, you, you know, a video conference, but then you've got these, you know, longer periods of, um, of quietness. You know, I can look in my diary and, for example, today there was, you know, doing this podcast with you and I had a, we have a, a meeting called Huddle at 10.15 every morning. The whole company comes onto a Zoom call and we um, all check in for about 20 minutes on what everyone's been up to. Apart from that, my day was clear. So so you have time to work on those projects that you might not have had time before. And I don't know, I find that I sometimes just sort of stare out the window and think, oh, you know, or, you know, I'd like to just check in on how that's going. And, you know, I can quickly touch base with someone where I find the noise and maybe a bit more of the franticness and um, the the meetings that you might have had in the office, so that, that has been different. So... For me personally, I feel quite um, uh, quite proud of the level of work that I've I've been able to do. Good on you. Look, I I don't know about you, but I, I think a, a big part of resilience is all about reframing situations, and I think COVID's a really interesting example of that. I know I've read a few articles about how you've you've managed to not to survive, but but actually thrive through these past couple of months. Um, how are you viewing the whole? COVID situation and how's it been affecting business for you? Um, so I'll go back a bit. At the start, and, you know, lots of things, you know, I've been doing what I do for 26 years now and there's been lots of different things that have happened. I might have a factory that's caught fire or the roof's blown off or we've been deleted from a supermarket. And what I've learnt through my career is that you have to get over the sometimes the anger or the grief of the situation and as quickly as you can say, well, it is what it is. That is now the situation. So what can we do to do the best we can in the situation we're in? And as quickly as you can get into that mindset is I think as quickly as you can say, okay, well, now um, now we're here, let's just do the best we can. And so um, before COVID, you know, before we were in any form of lockdown, I could see the writing on the wall that I was watching what was happening overseas and a, and a big thing for us, I, I, I could see that there was going to be this um, 
panic buying that people were going to start saying, oh, gosh, and you'd seen it on the news what people were doing overseas. So we increased our stock holdings quite a lot. And I still remember my CFO saying to me, Carolyn, you're really sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah, I do, I do. And so we really ramped up, which meant that um, for us, uh, and one other thing is that our product is all um, made in Victoria and our packaging is all made in, in Melbourne too. So that gave us this incredible competitive advantage. So when when sales just were going crazy, I mean, we were getting phone calls from places like Costco saying, just, we will take anything you've got, just, just sell us anything um, because, you know, the volume um, of stock that was moving was was something you couldn't have even dreamt of. And because we'd upped our holdings, but also that our um, we could get more packaging very quickly, a lot of our competitors had packaging that was made overseas. So a lot of our competitors um, were sold out. So we had this situation where you walk down a supermarket aisle and sometimes Carmen's was the only thing that was actually in stock in that in the categories that, that we sell in. So that was, you know, a great advantage at the, at the time. However, we also knew the writing on the wall that there's some of our range, which is what we call expandable. So if you have more muesli bars in your house, you'll probably eat more. But a lot of our range in our cereals, you don't eat more because you've got more muesli in the house. You don't pour a double size bowl of muesli. So we knew that then people would stop buying. So, you know, as quickly as it was, you know, absolutely crazy, then our sales kind of fell off a cliff and, you know, really no one was buying anything. That's now slowly petered out and and over the whole kind of journey we'll probably be completely flat. We won't have sold any more or any less than we would have. Um, it's just been in a crazy sort of roller coaster of, of the sales period. Yeah, how, how has the change affected your relationship with the retailers? Not really at all. I mean, they've been really grateful that we've been able to stay in stock. And that was that's always been, you know, I, I live with a, a healthy paranoia. I love to be able to supply any order that I can ever get. And so the fact that we could keep supplying, um, I have to say we, we had some beautiful things from all of our major retailers um, personally thanking us for the effort we went to and um, for for sort of, um, yeah, the fact that we could keep supplying. And so that they were actually extremely gracious about um how it all played out. So that was impressive. Because I'm, I'm sure your relationship with retailers has evolved a lot over the years, over the whatever it is, 25 plus years that Carmen's has, has been around. How would you describe those changes? What were some of those major inflection points in your relationship with those key customers that you can think of over the years? So you, you need to, you know, if you wind all the way back, you know, Carmen's was tiny. We didn't have a bank account. We didn't have a business name. It wasn't even called Carmen's when when I started. And so, you know, it took me five years to be able to get into one of the retailers and I got 20 stores and I delivered it in myself. And then slowly as we've um, grown and, and become, you know, a stronger brand and obviously had more products, it's meant that we've been in a, in a position that, you know, now the retailers, um, I've got to say, they're, they're amazing. Like they'll say, you know, we we work with them often a year in advance of what we're working on next year, and they're very good at giving us a crack. At I mean, they know that we do an enormous, as you know, Steve, enormous amount of market research and enormous amount of work on our on our positioning 
and our brand and and they give us a, a good chance to um, to be quite brave and to have really lovely um, displays in store. You know, we did a very big launch um, earlier this year with something called Aussie Oats, which is our um, our kids' muesli bar range. And, it, you know, it was phenomenal, the support that they had given us. So... And, and what do you what do you put that support down to, first and foremost, Karen? If you had to, I'm sure there's a number of different factors, but if you had to prioritise one or two, what do you think they'd be? You know, I've been through so many trends in my career and, you know, often what can happen is a supermarket can end up, you know, having too many brands in a category and really it often comes back down to saying they're going to have a, a more budget brand, they're going to have a middle mainstreamish brand and then they're going to, they want a premium offer. They want people to come and buy Carmen's because, in, because they might then spend a little bit more when they're going through the registers. So there is a, a very strong desirability that we actually still maintain our premium position. They don't want the store to be 100% private label. It doesn't serve them long term. And they also know that the the deep and interesting innovation comes from companies like ours because we're out there, we're looking at trends, which, you know, we're brave, we're going to try new things that they might not um, have been able to do without brands like us. So I have to say, as time's gone on, you know, for a long time, you know, in the very early days, I would always be so nervous, you know, thinking, I wouldn't get through this review. Will our product survive? Will our whole brand <laughs> survive another review <laughs> at the supermarket? And the joy of now thinking that we're stable enough that we can survive that. Now, not everything that we launch is, is a success, absolutely not, but we do have a very good track record of having pretty good um, uh, successful launches and that's something I'm very proud of. So any any tips for young budding entrepreneurs with pitches into, say, venture capitalists or retailers who, you know, they're, they're betting their life on, on stocking their product. How did, how did you manage your nerves and manage to stay so resilient during those early days? Look, I think that as much as this sounds really boring, but walk before you run. You know, I meet people and they haven't even made the product at all and they go, well, I want to go and pitch to the supermarkets. I'm like, well, start off and sell it at a farmer's market or sell it to a few delis or, and then get the feedback and change the product. It's highly unlikely that the first round of what you do is going to be what, you, you know, that you've got all the insights and the packaging and the pricing and everything's going to be right because you want to give yourself a chance. Like when we launch something, we always do very small print runs because we want to give ourselves a chance to change things and, and adjust to what feedback we're getting from the market. So I feel like don't just think that you give up your job on a Friday and then you have this whacking big order on a Monday and the business just starts off at this cracking pace. You are far better, and I think in the longevity of the business, to start smaller and, and be able to be more nimble in their knowing. So when you do give it that big crack that you've actually given it the best chance of it being a, a success. Were you thinking long-term back in the day when you first when you first started your business? What sort of timeframes and vision did you have in your head? So I never, ever thought it would ever be as big as it is today or with as many products. I mean, that's beyond, I think, what I ever anticipated. And I would say I probably still have certainly the same mindset now 
that I had then, which is what can I do with the resources I've got in the next year or two? So with the money I've got and the position I'm in, what's the best that I could do? And the best at the time might have been to get three muesli products into two supermarket chains. And now it might be getting 15 new products into, you know, a, a much broader range of um, outlets. You know, we do obviously a lot of, well, we do a lot of work now with air, airlines and, and with lots of um, different retailers. And now we're moving into some big box retailers, which is really exciting. And so I, I you know, I was broke for the first five years, like seriously broke. And so by the time I was able to be in a position that I could pay my bills and we didn't have to worry about money, I just, I love that. I love that that is not part of what I have to worry about on a daily basis. So I used to, you know, that challenge of thinking, who are you going to pay? And, you know, so I still now make sure that we make decisions that don't ever completely stress us out financially. So we don't run the most expensive TV campaigns and we don't bet the whole lot on something because I just want to be able to say, well, we can do something and we can risk it failing. So sometimes you can be more brave if you say, you know what, let's give it our best chance and if it doesn't work out, that's okay and then we can keep moving. I think sometimes um, that sense of putting all of your energy into worrying, you know, I still own Carmen's, you know, 100% myself Mm. and I say that that means I'm not making decisions worrying about what the stock market thinks I don't have to answer to anyone else. So we can say, all right, we're just going to batten down and have a consolatory year or we're going to, you know, give it an absolute crack. Like we're having, you know, my, my take is particularly over COVID that a lot of people will have put people off and, you know, particularly in our space, you know, one of our big competitors just completely shut their new product division down. I'm like, this is our time. Like, let's go just twice as hard now because, <laughs> you know, we should be really, you know, um, doing the absolute best we can because when there's other people not presenting and not able to um, to push as hard with their innovation, let's just, um, and, and, yeah, let's be probably braver and faster than we've ever been. And for whatever reason, I, um, you know, during the last few months I feel that we've been doing, yeah, some, some really beautiful work and very... Um, very brave and and interesting work um, that's, yeah, that I'm very, very proud of. So so that's brave and and really interesting insight in terms of the evolution of your relationship with retailers here in Australia. To shift gears a little bit and talk about um, forays into China, because I remember the first time I met you, you probably don't remember, but we were sitting at a at a table at a presentation by I think it was the vice president of Alibaba in Asia Pac, and I'll never forget you standing up. But the lady had done her presentation. The woman had done her presentation, and they turned to the audience for questions. And you put your hand up and very bravely introduced yourself as Carolyn Creswell, who is the founder of Carmen's, and very clearly and diplomatically said to the vice president of, of Alibaba that you were having some challenges with some other brands on the platform that were quite blatantly ripping off your IP. And was there anything that they could suggest you could do about it? I'd be fascinated to, to hear how you continued to manage that relationship um, subsequent to those conversations. Yeah, it's funny what 
what you see as brave and for me I see as um, another day at the office. You know, for me that's um, I'm never scared to ask a tough question. I, I'm very proud of my business. I'm very proud of what I've built and I'm very proud to defend it or if I feel that, um, that someone is doing the wrong thing by us, I will fight like crazy to go, that is not cool. And in this situation we had people completely doing like, you know how you have like a fake whatever it is, Gucci handbag. Well, they were doing complete fake Carmen's, which I just couldn't get my head around. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I get, I get that people rip off. You didn't find off, it flattering, obviously. Yeah, people rip off a $10,000 handbag, but really a $5 packet of muesli bars. And um, to their credit, they followed up immediately and, you know, they said we're taking down 3,000 products a day or something and they said if there's any more issues and the the head person came and, and got details from me and, like, we're on the same team. They don't want it either. They don't want people to buy something and then a counterfeit arrive. So, um, you know, that that was one, yeah, one interesting thing. But Well done. Yeah. Because, and you've, you've recently pulled out of the Chinese market. Yes. Um, and I was, because I was thinking about, I heard about a, an old Chinese folklore of the lost horse. Have you heard about that, the lost horse? No. Where the, the main protagonist loses his horse and, and he's offered sort of condolences by a neighbour who says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and the horse owner quite famously in this folklore responds with it, it might be good luck, it might be bad luck, or it might be too soon to, to tell. Um, in terms of your, your exit from China, are you viewing that as good luck, bad luck, or is it too soon to tell? Um, I, what would I, how would I say that? I have a, a philosophy that I never want to die wondering. So when I go and do something, you know, whether it we might be, you know, for example, years ago we launched a, a range of, of kids' bars called Yummos. They were popcorn bars. And I want to make sure that every touch point that my packaging was as best as I could at the time and we'd done, you know, the research and, and we gave it the best launch that we could and at the end of the day, I can do all of that, but it's the last 50 metres. It's the person walking down the aisle who sees that and goes, yep, I'm ha- happy to hand my $5 over, put it in my trolley and buy it. That's what actually matters. And for everything that we can ever do, we can never really know what's going to stick with consumers and what isn't. And so in, in everything I do and in my personal life too, um, I want to do it till I'm proud. I don't want to half-ass do something or do it in a way of going, oh, look, if I tried harder, it might have worked. And we tried really hard in China. And the thing for us in China was that the the product, we got it in amazing supermarkets. It looked beautiful. We had gorgeous Chinese packaging. We had some great advertising. But it was only really working when we had sort of, um, that they call them um, KOLs, key opinion leaders, who were out sort of spruiking it and then people would buy a lot, but they just weren't coming back and buying it week after week. And I kind of got to a point where I went, you know, this is the amount of money I'm prepared to invest in in the market. And once we got to the end and we'd, we'd tried very hard for about three years, so we're just not getting the... You need people... Like, I can't launch a product now and I never want to have a business where we only sell when we're on, on promotion. 
there's lots of product, products in the supermarket where people walk along and they say, do you know what, if it's on sale, I'll buy it, but otherwise I don't, you know, so, so they don't have that sense of baseline sales. And unfortunately for us at the moment in China, there just wasn't enough um, baseline sales of people buying us week in, week out. And it was very expensive to, to try and get the traction so, and because I said before, I own Carmen's myself, this is my money, you know, I literally mm. think about it when I'm investing that money of saying, well, how much am I prepared to kind of gamble? And then you've got to know when to walk away. You have to mm. know to say, that's what I've spent. And that doesn't mean that we haven't learnt an enormous amount. That I have no regrets. I would do it all again because we know so much and, and maybe in a couple of years' time that we will pick that up again um, or we will say, oh, there's a different entry in, or, you know, we've had lots of different um, um, offers of, like, collaborations over there, and maybe that is a different way we might look, of it, look at it rather than just trying to do it all ourselves. Um, so. Okay. No, that's really great insight. Because I, I, I know that um, you, you've done your own, I've heard you've done your own kind of strength testing or character testing via character is that right? And you've talked about your number one strength being zest, which you can see <laughs> kind of comes out in in spades. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear how you, you know, because obviously you can get caught up on new and interesting things very easily, and particularly as a sole business owner, I'd love to hear more about whether you do have any sort of tools to be able to catch yourself and stop going down paths that perhaps aren't in your own best interests. I think, you know, there is... Me as a person, and I'm a eternal optimist and um, super positive and, and have, you know, a lot of things that I juggle. And then there's what Carmen's does. And Carmen's is a, um, I, I can say it, but it's a, a beautifully run business. It has extraordinary people. We, um, I, I personally fight bureaucracy like crazy and try and make sure that, People are empowered to do their job and we just, you know, we don't end up sort of doing business with ourselves and that we um, we don't have a, a lot of people for the size of business we are. We have a, an office of about 45 people in our head office, but we do, we, we punch above our weight, I think, in the um, in the way that we operate and the number of products we release. And, and when people, I think, hopefully interact with us, they'd say we were switched on, we're tough, um, where um, demand, look, you've worked with us. You could, you could comment on, on what <laughs> you would say. All like, those but, things, all but, those things. Yeah, Karen. but we deeply know who we are. We deeply know our DNA, um, and I think that we, you know, we are in a kind of hierarchical organisation. And so, what I might want to, um, I, I can't just go jumping from this to that. You know, I, I believe in the process of what we're all doing together as a team. I personally spend a lot of my time looking at um, the new products, the direction, the brand work, you know. So, for example, in COVID where um, we've been launching and doing some work in some really beautiful limited edition products that are much, you know, as I said, braver and, and different to what you would normally see on a supermarket shelf. And so don't just think, I don't just put my finger I don't know, to the wind and say, right, this is the direction we're going. We do agree on that as a team and I don't always, it's not always just what I think. Um, some, you know, I get shut down. Um, I certainly get listened to as well, but I um, would say overall that 
yes, we're we're a, we're a good united team in deciding what the direction we communally want to head in. It's not just yeah, the dictator saying, right, um, come on, let's go. No, I, I can vouch for the fact that you do a, a phenomenal job of, of empowering your team and having met your head of innovation and knowing, speaking of new products, how critical innovation has been to your growth story over the course of the last 25 years. Because it's, it's not just kind of tweaking products to a minor extent, putting a few extra nuts in muesli bars or whatever. It's, it's genuine, genuinely new products in new categories and you've done it over and over and over again for so many years now. I'd love if you could step us through your innovation philosophy um, and how you go about that process, understanding that you have got such an extraordinary track record in succeeding in that space. So before I start on that, before when you asked me about the supermarket, the, the and it, it ties back into this question, what some people think they should do is they want to just copy what's already out there. Now, if you just copy something that's very similar to what's on the shelf, there's not just enough reason why someone would buy you. So you either got to pour money into the brand or you've got to make it substantially cheaper than what's already on the shelf. And both of them, you know, so I call them me too products. That's me too. That that when the, you know, at one point every, you know, say five years, the supermarket will say, well, hang on, is there enough loyalty on that product or could we just get rid of a few of those brands because we have our uh, entry level, we have our strong middle brand and we have our premium offering. And yes, there'll be some other brands that fit into that, but generally that's the hierarchy. So what I try and make sure that we do, that firstly is that we would never do anything that's just me too. I'm not interested. We're not trying to copy what's out there. In fact, we had a, a big meeting yesterday on a new flavour that lots of, um, you know, it's a hot flavour and lots of people are looking at I'm like, well, you know, really do we, <laughs> what, what's, what else are the international trends? So we, um, we look at international trends and, and where food is heading. We're not the, the first, you know, we're not the groundbreaking brand that's going to take every niche trend and be first to market with it. We often will wait to see if that trend starts to get some traction and what that might mean. So, you know, I've lived through... Um, no fat in any product. So, you know, everyone was pulling out the fat and it's full of sugar. We're obviously now the opposite where people are, are more than happy to have coconut and things in products, but they're really conscious of, of sugar levels. And, you know, what that might mean, say, for us for a decal or a call out. So sometimes we can look at what the new trend is. So clearly at the moment, vegan and plant-based eating is, is a huge trend. So we said, well, hang on, if we look at our whole portfolio, so we have 11 um, ranges of what we do. I kind of, in my mind, I think about them like children. Um, so there'll be, um, you know, uh, natural muesli and there'll be the toasted muesli or there'll be traditional bars or there'll be nut bars. So there's 11 of those. And in each one we'll say, well, hang on, now that we know vegan's a trend, is there anything that we should look at across our current range in call-outs? Is there anything we should look at just tweaking an ingredient? So we've been working recently to take honey out of some of our products because vegans can't have honey so that we can just tweak and adjust to what that trend is. So there can be trends like that. There can be ingredient trends. Um, there can be uh, ideas um, that are 
uh, you know, for us, this, you know, this success we've had in doing something really interesting with sort of limited edition, you know, we, we brought out a product just for 7-Eleven, which was a limited edition cookies and cream protein bar, which has been a phenomenal success. And we now sell that in the supermarkets and doing, you know, really interesting different packaging. So there's a whole lot of different things that we would do to, um, to look at what we currently do. And then it's, what, how you head into new categories. So, you know, the big trend also is savoury. So people are obviously very conscious of sugar. So the push that we've had into entering into crackers and we've had, a, um, you know, a very successful launch in that space. So that's a whole new aisle of the supermarket for us, a whole new buyer. And I always just try and make sure that anything we make, and I and that's why, you know, we I spend a lot of my time looking at products just on a plain white plate to say, is this awesome? Is this, without all of the branding and the Carmen's wrapping and anything, is this great just on its own? Because we will never take something that doesn't, at the end of the day, everything we make needs to taste good. You know, people know Carmen's is the healthier, cleaner product range, but we don't want to sell birdseed. We're trying to sell stuff that people enjoy and want to come back and buy week after week. Let me tell you, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. I, I know it all too well. It, in terms of the role of consumers in that innovation process, it seems to me that you are very plugged in to your consumer base and that's also a, a key part of your go-to-market process. Can you elaborate some more on the role that they play in your innovation program? One part is what we have something called Carmen's Kitchen Table. So when the business was much, much smaller and it was sort of just me and Mandy, and you know Mandy that does our packaging now. Love Mandy. We, yes, we put up a survey monkey um, uh, survey on our website and we would just ask people, what made you buy Carmen's first? You know, it cost $80. I still remember doing it. And that has now morphed over the last 15 years into one of the largest FMCG owned platform. So it's our own platform, which is called Carmen's Kitchen Table. And uh, pretty much every week, sometimes twice a week, we go out with a survey. Now it might be to certain people. Like I said, there's 11 um, different products we have or ranges of products. So it might be out to the porridge eaters. We'll ask them about, you know, we might show them some new flavours or some colours of packaging and and, the, and they'll come back overnight. So we'll have thousands of people that will come back overnight and then we we often send them um, products to try or gifts or, you know, when we launch something, we, we always send it to them first to say thank you for their help in, in us making that happen. So that's one part. The other part is something called Project Ignite, which means that um, whenever anyone, like the greatest source of learning we can ever have is from our unhappy customers. So what's gone wrong or what's the feedback we're getting? How does that get fed straight up to the leadership team? And what are we going to do about it? So um, that, that's really interesting. Elaborate on that a little bit for me. Why do you say that the greatest source of learning you can have is from your unhappy customers? So when people ring up and say, so for example, at the moment, they'll say, I love Carmen's, but, you know, I'm worried about the environment. And can you talk about your sustainable, you know, your packaging? So once we've received, you know, and, and every month we'll have what, what the themes, what are people telling us? What are the issues? Um, we've had an issue recently with one of our bars that the way that we've packed it on the pallet, the bars have shrunk. They're the right weight, but they've sort of got fatter and shorter rather than the, the length they should be. 
So then that needs to come up and then we as a leadership team need to say, okay, of these themes, that of these issues that have come through, what are we going to do about it? Because if you are not fixing your business constantly and being a little bit better tomorrow than you were yesterday and dealing with some of these, you know, for every person that rings us and talks to us about sustainability, there'll be 10 people that don't. There'll be 100 people probably that don't. So how do we know, how do we get the kind of the vibe of the times and make sure that we're doing something. So for example, on our porridge, um, people would say, we love having your porridge in um, individually wrapped sachets. It's fantastic, I can take it to the office, but I don't want them in plastic. So then we've now moved those into paper sachets. And that was quite a massive project because the machine that can run plastic is not the same packing machine that can pack in paper. But you know, the, the feedback we've already had, I, I had the call yesterday of saying we've had so many people ring up and say, thank you for making it paper. I feel so much better now. So that's just, that's how you become better. And the only, um, the person that pays my salary and everyone else's salary is the customer that goes out there and says, yep, I like buying Carmen's and I'm happy to buy it week in, week out. I don't want, if they keep falling off, that's when your business starts going backwards. So if you're not living with this healthy paranoia of delivering what they want and and in the best way you possibly can. I think that's that's the essence of your kind of business success. Mm. Do, you, do you think there's such a thing as listening to your customer too much? Can that ever become a no. actually more of a hindrance than a help? No. So I personally, so the other, the third part of it, so, the you know, we've got mm. the Carmen's Kitchen Table, we've got the feedback of the customers now, Sometimes you've got crazy customers and it's not like you're going to take every single call and go, oh, my gosh, we've got to act on every single sure. thing. It's definitely the themes of what's coming up. And the last thing is market research. So whether you're doing quant or qual, whether you're doing, you know, these big studies, whether you're looking at your brand and how it resonates, whether you're looking at, um, new, you know, often for us it's big pieces of work on new categories that we're entering into and what are people who aren't Carmen's customers like think? Because it's easy, you know, on our kitchen table, they're obviously Carmen's lovers that we've got that are going to give us the feedback. So they're going to be very enthusiastic. But people, you know, you watch someone when they walk down the supermarket aisle, they might stop for a couple of seconds and quickly choose which pasta sauce. Will they not buy a pasta sauce if their one's out of stock? Or, you know, mm. which are the things where they say, well, I won't replace it with something else. But I don't work in a category that's like buying a car and it's a huge decision. I work a category that, or in a business where people make these decisions, you know, quite um, quickly and... Quite often subconsciously. Yeah, so yeah. How, um, how do we get enough really rich and interesting data? So I think about what people might want so that we can really try and make sure that our launches are successful. So it probably, you know made me a little bit sick for a while of what we would spend in that space because <laughs> that, you know, for a business our size, I think we, we uh, not overspend, that's not the right word, but we spend a lot of money in trying to make sure that we get a launch right. So when you walk down, you think, gosh, Carmen's nailed that. <laughs> it didn't just happen by chance. We, we really have put a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Like we've got a new launch coming out in a couple of months. And I look at it and I just laugh now because I think people are going to think it just got born like that. But that's been two years of blood, sweat and tears to make it look so naturally at ease that it's, um, you know, the, yeah. So and that's what you hope. You hope at the yeah. end that you just think, oh, gosh, it just looks so, um, um, 
so, you know, so like it was always meant to be. So you touched on data. I, I can only imagine um, the size of the data lake that you're swimming in has kind of expanded exponentially over the course of the last, well, particularly the last kind of five to 10 years. What role does data play in your business now, Carolyn, in terms of um, how it informs and helps you make better decisions? Because presumably when you first started, so much of it was on personal experience and, and almost your own instinct. The reality is what really, really matters is what goes through the cash registers every week. And so if I change a decal, the moment that that decal, so let's just say I might change something that used to say... Um, um, no added sugar. Well, I was going to come to the attitude. So it used to say <laughs> 10 grams of fibre and now it says less than four grams of sugar. The moment that that product hits the shelves, I want to know, so from when I look at the baseline sales, how much of an increase did we have because of that change? Now, you know, it's not as dramatic as this, but sometimes, you know, I've had product, I've changed product names. So, I, you know, remember we had the blueberry seed and nut bar and I racked my brain, it was selling like a dog. I changed it to the Blueberry Superfoods Bar, oh, um, Dark Chalk Superfoods Bar, increased sales by 25% the moment that that new name hit. The product formulation didn't change at all? Didn't change at all. Right, it's just about how you kind of position it. If something's superfoods and it's got dark chalk, it sounds like it's good for you, And whereas um, seed and nut bar sounds like it's birdseed. So um, the data then was still the same data I have access to now, but now it's much more sophisticated and I have analysts that are uh, um, incredible at Carmen's to help work out um, what are the trends and when something hit and because we've obviously got a lot more products now um, to keep an eye on it. But for me, it's not about what a warehouse buys. It's literally about the scan sales of saying what's been going through the registers and particularly when a new product hits, and then what's what's the baseline? I'm not as worried if something's on promotion. You know, what I care about is, so for example, if we have a promotion, did more people, did, did we find a few more loyalists and we've had that little 5% increase on our baseline that just more people will come back week after week? Because that's my, my greatest um, hope and, and business success is that people will enjoy our products enough that to say it's become part of my repertoire. That's the one that I want to put in my pantry in. And there's a lot of stuff that gets wrapped around that, around, as you know, the brand and how it resonates with people around what how, what they believe that we stand for as a company. And there's a huge push, particularly now about COVID, about Australian-owned companies, that people saying, well, hang on, I really love the fact that this is made in Australia and, you know, that we've got Australian workers and there's, there's just a very nice um, energy and I think there's been a lot of media about that this week. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you obviously managed to find an extraordinary balance between good old fashioned instinct, kind of creative inspiration and extraordinary understanding of customer and then paying attention to to all the right metrics as well. To shift gears a little bit and talk about you specifically and, and being so accomplished in the business world and having done such extraordinary things with, with Carmen's, how much do you focus on how you work like the tools, techniques that you use, the technology that you use versus what you actually work on as as a business owner? Look, I have a 
fascination for sort of self-development of how do I um, learn more and improve myself and and I will often, and you will have sat in a meeting with me where I'll say, I don't know what that word means. I'm not embarrassed to, I don't pretend that, you know, um, I understand all the terms. I've just actually started my other thing in COVID was to do a, um, a mini MBA, a marketing MBA with Mark Ritson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that you know, that's been fascinating of constantly, you know, it's, I, I'm always trying to learn more and to sharpen um, whatever tools I've got in my toolbox to be able to challenge myself to be better at, at how I show up. Now, that might be in, you know, I might go through a period of going, how do I be a better manager? How do I be a better leader? Because that's a huge skill set in itself. How do I actually learn more about what I'm actually doing, which is what I'm doing at the moment? Or how, you know, and, and so I, and I get, take a lot of inspiration from other businesses um, that I admire, whether it's, you know, and so I read a lot of business books on, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Disney or Nike or Apple or whatever, you know, all the usual suspects and, you know, listen to podcasts and, and um, um, you know, lots of audio books to, to try and be inspired and, you know, and I, I think that's really helped me have this kind of quality product focus um, and then I've become even more customer obsessed by looking at other businesses and realising that it just comes back to people wanting, you know, to love buying your product. Yeah, you you seem to be someone who's not only highly organised <laughs> and, and I heard the term precrastinator the other day huh. um, and I know well, that you're very that diligent. <laughs> Precrastinator is someone who books things a long a long while in advance mm. and has to finish things very early in a in a time frame in order to feel comfortable with things. And and I know that you do keep you're a great list keeper, right? So you're very good with with to do lists. Do you have a to don't list? Yes, and I think what you don't do is just as important. So I um you know pre COVID did lots of um, public speaking. That was it's another part you know of, of my of my role at Carmen's and I would have done thousands of speeches to organisations, you know, in the last, say, 10 years. And one of the things that I talk about is, you know, so whatever you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. So the art of the graceful no, of how you say no gracefully and quickly is an unbelievable skill to learn and it comes, um, there's a book, it's not coming to my name, that where they, where they help talk you through it. But, you know, I'll receive an email and it'll say, um, look, hi, Carolyn, you know, it's uh, John, your next door neighbour. I hope you don't mind. My nephew's very keen to get into the food industry. He's just not sure what he might like to do. So would you mind having a coffee with him? So, hey, John, it's lovely to see your name pop into the inbox. Look, I'm sorry, I don't do coffee because my time is so um, sort of stretched with four kids and However, what I could do is talk to um, uh, Henry when I'm driving to work one morning. I'm more than happy to slot in a call. So then I'll just choose how I can do something. I don't always say no, and yes, I, I certainly do say straight out no, but I'll try and say no, but this is what I could do. So you know, I think I, I'm, you would know I'm, I'm relatively well known for the fact that I actually don't do coffee with anyone. If anyone mm. asks me to come in and have mm. coffee, I just... 
I feel that I, I'm very protective of my time so that I can have time for anyone at Carmen's when they need me, when they want to brainstorm something, that's the best time. So, you know, the bank is always the funny one because they want to come in and they just say, well, what do you mean Carolyn's not going to come to this meeting? I don't just sit through meetings just for face with a bank manager. I, I luckily am in a position that I, I can um, delegate that to my CFO and, and... Good for you. Yeah. I'm still doing the bank manager meetings, unfortunately. <laughs> that is shocking. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, if you look back at your day, your week, your month, your year, and you think, um, where did I sort of waste my time? And that's what I think I've loved about COVID, that we've probably felt we haven't wasted our time, that we've prioritised on things. You know, I, I watch a movie with my kids every night, which is something I didn't do pre-COVID, and that's not a waste of time. That's just awesome family time. So, oh, sensational. You know, how you work, you know, I, I have a big thing about how I sort of work my day so that it's the right layout and that that I feel um, I can get done what I want to get done um, and live the life I want to live. Obviously, your kids are a big part of that. Sure. And, and like me, you you worked day and night for the first few years to sustain cash flow in your business. Um, you worked in supermarkets. I worked in, what was it, Tucker Bag Paran, I think. Oh, yes. Back, back <laughs> Don't know whether they were ever a customer of yours, but... They sure were. How, how do you manage your own kids in ensuring that they get the work ethic um, required to make the sort of changes that they want to see in the world? It's a great question because, you know, I'd love to think that I could give my kids a bit more, you know, um, grit and, and, you know, you want them to have um, that that drive and... And, you know, and it does worry me. And I, and I do think, though, that the level of, of education and what's expected and the extracurricular activities are just so much greater now than what we had. You know, I, I don't know, I don't remember it being scheduled every night. Like, and even here with all of the Zoom, you know, jazz class and um, personal training sessions and, like... It's been, it is quite, um, I think, a challenge for kids these days to feel that they're doing everything they, they, that the school's wanting. And, and for their parents. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, I talk to them a lot about, um, you know, just being decent human beings and um, being grateful. You know, we do something at dinner each night where we tr- talk about what we uh, force them to talk about what they're grateful for and, and you know, highlights of their day. And, um, you know, they're great kids. So, oh. I don't know. I'm doing my I'm doing my best. <laughs> and doing a bloody yeah. well, so. but, but talk to me a little bit about gratefulness because I have I have heard you talk about that a little bit. Um, how how has it made a positive difference to your life and beyond that your business? Look, I think and um, I think there's a Hugh that runs the Happiness Project. You know, they it comes back to the the greatest sense of happiness that you can have as a person is just to constantly think, how lucky am I? You know, and I, I was reflecting for whatever reason this, this morning on something that I'd heard years ago and for anyone that's ever seen The Castle and I heard the producers of The Castle being interviewed once and they said, we made this character, Daryl Kerrigan, the, the dad in The Castle, because yes. that, is, that is the husband that every woman wants that walks in and says, oh, 
Dal, what did you do with it? And she goes, I just grilled the chops. Oh, <laughs> so proud of you. That's going straight to the pool room when the kid wins, you know, fourth prize in the, yeah. in the cheerleading. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you are just, if you have um, wonder and awe and, and um, gratefulness for the, for the small aspects, whether, you know, for your relationship, for your kids, for your, um, for your friendships, you know, it's not about what anyone else has. And that's what worries me about social media, about people looking and thinking, oh, my gosh, look at that great party I wasn't invited to, whatever. Uh, to me, it's the opposite. It's how do you just feel so, um, just so, like I I am so genuinely often, you know, I, I will have a little tear at work or something when I'm giving a big speech about how proud I am, and, you know, and, and so grateful that people have, you know, gone that extra mile to make something happen or, you know, I remember when we got listed on Amazon and and <laughs> bawled my eyes out because it was like <laughs> something that I just wanted so badly and, you know, and I, if you don't lose, like I want to get up each morning, particularly on a Monday morning and go, I'm so excited by what I'm doing today and I have to say I do feel really sorry and I encourage anyone who isn't fulfilled in their work that, they think, you know what, well, the only person that can change that is me and to start trying to navigate. And obviously that's a, a terrible conversation to be having with COVID when so many people are are suffering, um, you know, in their careers. But mm. I, I think that would be really worthwhile exploring for just a second if we yeah. could. Yeah. What what advice might you have for people who've found themselves you know, unemployed in a, in a job market that, that's pretty dire at the minute in terms of, again, trying to, look at or trying to reframe the situation and trying to turn it into a positive, if at all possible? You know, look, I, I don't want to sound, you know, it's um, it's condescending for me to sit here and, and um, say I know what it feels like for someone to, to be in that situation when, you know, I'm obviously, you know, running a... a successful business that, um, that is, is not in, in dire straits at the moment. What I could only reflect back is in the early years of my career when things were really terribly tough and, um, you know, particularly having, you know, many years of um, um, very stressful financial situations, you know, you you need at some point and you, you can't necessarily do it right now to curate your life to say, this is what I would love my life to look like. And there's a there's a beautiful um, I don't know if you've heard this, but humor me, the Mexican fisherman. Have you heard this yeah. little story? Yeah. So very quickly, there's a, yeah, a yeah. guy and he's a Harvard MBA and he goes to a little Mexican town and he sees a guy come in and he's caught a few fish and he says, "Why have you come in so early?" He said, "Oh, that's all I needed to catch. I sell a couple of them. I've got some for my family." And he said, "Well, what are you going to do?" He said, "Oh, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to." have a siesta and then I'm going to go and um, I'm play some guitar with my friends down the street and then my wife will have some dinner and we'll have a little bit of dancing. And and um, and then he said, well, well, why wouldn't you catch more? And he goes through this whole, Google it if you're interested, but it's it's a beautiful story. And he, well, you could be bigger if you caught more fish. You could own the yeah. factory. You could move out of this town and da, da da And then he said, well, what then, what then? And then eventually 25 years later, well, you could just move back to this gorgeous little town and, you you know, you could just sleep and play guitar and see your friends and dance with your wife and it was just... And go fishing every day. <laughs> exactly. What <laughs> What are you hunting for and what would you like your days to look like? 
And, you know, my husband happens to be a very good golfer and everyone's always said, well, why don't you teach people to play golf? He said, there's a very big difference between me enjoying playing golf and me being wanting to teach people to play golf. And I think sometimes people get confused or they think that the career, you know, particularly for my friends who, you know, it was the cool thing to become lawyers. And then for for some of them, that hasn't been, that hasn't given them a sense of purpose or nurtured their soul as much as perhaps they might have thought when it impressed their parents, which is mm. what I was trying to do was get into law and I didn't. A lot of those lawyers have ended up in advertising. By yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of have this sense of, you know, I, as you said before, you know, in, I'm sitting here in a, in a gorgeous little country town with the most beautiful neighbours who, um, you know, it, you know, it's, there's a lot to be said for a simpler life, you know in a smaller country town than necessarily hunting for the bigger house and, the, um, and you know, maybe a life that, it, you know, there's just different options of what your days and what you, mm. what life could look like. Yeah, look, I think that's a fantastic note to, to end on. I can tell you that we're very grateful to have been lucky <laughs> enough to join you from your beautiful country town up in Bina. Thank you. Carolyn, we're under no misconception. Your story is one of the great small business success stories, I would say, in Australian history. You've achieved success through, I would describe it as like absolute authenticity and being true to you and your beliefs. Um, And that plus smarts and steely determination, you've brought about a stack of goodness to the world. So I've really loved learning more about it all today. Thank you for your time. Thanks Pleasure. very much for joining us on, I'm on laughing. Change. Do you think that you could, like, tell that to my children when they tell me tonight? <laughs> really, could you not have cooked something we like more for dinner? <laughs> we'll, we'll have the recording. You can play it back to them. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, thanks, thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks it's been a great so chat. Much. Appreciate it.